Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang, I want to make a connection with the events that are happening. Some of them are, of course, related with the Easter days. And on Sunday, we are having the Shambhala Easter, which uh, most of you don't know what it is. You probably heard rumors through the school of what that is. And uh, so there are, there, is, there are these events related with the Easter day and with Shambhala meditations. And then we are in the middle of a lot of Shakti teaching in the school. It's the beginning of the Mahavidya program and people are taking Mahavidya initiations. And not long time from now, in May, we're going to celebrate the Shakti festival, the complementary of the Mahashivaratri in February. And um, this, this Shakti festival is um, placed around the month of May for a very good purpose because Ramakrishna himself, who was one of the greatest modern times worshippers of Shakti under the, her form of Kali, Tara, in India, Ramakrishna himself had a favorite festival which was happening in May around full moon or new moon. And um, both in the previous days and in the coming days, we are immersed in this um, practice of Shakti, of the tantric practices of worshipping the feminine in its various forms. And uh, it is for this reason that I thought I would like to give a presentation of the life of Ramakrishna, because Ramakrishna is an inspiration in one way, in many ways, but in one way, because he is an exemplary Shakti practitioner. He is the most archetypal worshipper of Kali and in general of any Shakti. And um, that's why I think that uh, you hear often teachers in this school quoting from Ramakrishna or making reference to what Ramakrishna did or said. But I think it's a beautiful thing to invoke a little bit his presence in this context so that more inspiration, more aspiration comes to the school by understanding his life. There are several biographies of Ramakrishna. I tried to take a, a few excerpts from a material published in May, June 1965 in the French magazine Planet, a very well-written biography, and from that one, I took some excerpts. So while usually in my satsangs and lectures I speak freely, in this one because I'm quoting a biography and I just want to make comments here and there on it, I would like to read. So reading is always a little bit more heavy, a little bit more tedious. 
but uh, I think that uh, I wanted to go through this text because it is written by uh, very good writers. It is written in a very good, in a very elevated style and mentioning um, uh, metaphysical references plenty. And um, that's why I kept it like this. Moreover, this text... Um, in a slightly altered form, in a slightly modified translation of it, has been one of my uh, motivators, one of my inspirational texts in my youth. When I was young and practicing yoga, I was uh, often reading this text, and this is how I got to know Ramakrishna, and um, I was quoting his words in my meditations and during yoga practices, especially when I needed aspiration, uh, great inspiration. And um, for me, parts of this text were that I could recite them by heart at times. Um, and uh, this resonance with uh, Ramakrishna, which I acquired in this way, which uh, Romain Roland called the prince of the yogis, a prince among the yogis, this resonance became so marked, it marked me so much that when I took the sannyasa in 1998, my guru, who had the intention of giving me another name for the initiation, in that night he meditated and he got this inspiration and in the morning when he called me Swami Vivekananda, he said, I am like Ramakrishna, you shall be like Vivekananda, like suddenly he got inspired, he could feel this resonance which I had with the personality of Ramakrishna, which is a very uh, extreme personality in some ways. You're going to see that he's very, very extreme because of his extraordinary Ishvara Pranidhana and because of his extraordinary uh, sensitivity, like very, very responsive to everything which is spiritual. In the colophon here to start, there is a pre-text which says, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa outwardly was a small Brahmin peasant from Bengal, whose life on the outside, which was from 1836 to 1886, so he lived just 50 years of age, passed by very simply, without any big events, outside of the political and social sphere of his time. However, his inner life, embraced the multiplicity of men and gods, this being a quote from the famous French novelist and writer Romain Roland, who actually wrote his life, was so inspired by it that he wrote it in a in a romantic form, like he it's a it's a retold story, the life of Ramakrishna. So Ramakrishna lived in some very turbulent times where the Hindu tradition was going down and he restored so much of this mysticism of yoga and tantra that he is considered by many people the reviver of all the modern Hinduism, like everything started after Ramakrishna with all the modern gurus of yoga of India. And um, because of this, Ramakrishna is considered by many people in India a minor avatara. He is considered not to be a man, he is considered to be a visitor on this planet 
the ninth incarnation of Vishnu in this Yuga. And therefore, like Abhinava Gupta, this is one of the major players in the spirituality of India. And uh, you can see the specificities of his. On the 18th of February, 1836, in Kamar Pukur, Bengal, small boy, son of humble Brahmins named Gadadhar, and who would later be given by initiation the name Ramakrishna, was born. So he was not born Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was his spiritual name, and that is precisely why it is said that he is a synthesis of Rama and Krishna, who both are the pillars of the Indian mysticism and spirituality. And uh, that's why he is called Krishna was the eighth reincarnation of Vishnu. And Paramahamsa Ramakrishna is called to be number nine, is considered to be number nine. And just anecdotally, for those of you who immerse yourselves in astrology, being born on 18th of February, he was an Aquarius close to the sign of the Pisces, just to understand his temperament, because... He had a lot of the mysticism of the Pisces, but he was a very, very airy mystic person. And uh, that's typical for the Aquarians. While Swami Shivananda built up a university and a press and a kitchen and an ashram and a leper colony and hospitals, and Ramakrishna never built two bricks on top of each other. While Shivananda wrote probably 200 books and brochures, Ramakrishna never wrote one line on a white piece of paper. So it's like, it's a typical, typical, airy type of mystical person. He received a straight and simple education, learning to read and write in a nearby school. That's also the education of being a Brahmin. He was from the Brahmin caste and automatically he was bent by the Indian Dharma to go into the study of spiritual things. At the age of six, he was to know his first violent revelation, that of the immanent beauty of nature and its contrasts. This first experience which he had at six, the first thing which he told about his life, already shows him to be a madman. If you are a very strict American psychiatrist or psychologist, you would say that this man was definitely at least hysterical. This, the next reaction is the reaction of a person who is so oversensitive that suffers from some form of hysteria. And uh, it is remembered that sometimes mystics have features of hysteria. I remember 40 years ago having seen an article on the German mystic Therese Neumann who was not eating anything and was bleeding every Thursday, witnessing the crucifixion of Christ, and uh, who was verified by the Nazi regime to make sure that she does not cheat in any way and she's not a hoax and so on, and whom Paramahamsa Yogananda visited and writes about her in his book. And uh, the article written in a secular magazine of Friends was titled Therese Neumann, Saint or Hysteric. Like for psychologists, because of their materialistic orientation or general inclination, a saintly person like a Francis of Assisi 
can also be considered a slightly hysterical person and many of these strange manifestations that people get stigmata and visions and stuff, um, it can be considered a manifestation of hysteria. Uh, this does not diminish with anything the size of uh, the saintly characters. Of course, for materialists it does. It's like an attempt to present them like psychically damaged people. But on the other hand, it points the attention towards some of the typologies that exist in spirituality. This typology of Ramakrishna is for some people almost scary. And uh, if you feel that Ramakrishna was too much of a windy person for you, then probably you want to be like Yogananda Paramahamsa or like... Uh, Swami Shivananda, who are much more down-to-earth type of yogi. So it's not compulsory to be like this. Actually, Ramakrishna is a bit extreme, even by comparison with many other yogis. Here is his first experience of ecstasy, actually, at the very age of six, just because of a natural view, because the sight of some unusual sight. He says, it's a quote, People quote his own words. People put down his own words. He didn't write it. I was walking down a narrow path separating the rice paddies, rice fields in near, near um, Calcutta. I was looking up towards the sky while chewing some rice. I saw a beautiful cloud darkened by the storm and which was expanding very quickly. It soon covered the entire sky. Suddenly, hemming this cloud above my head came a flight of cranes, of snow-like whiteness. This contrast between the purple, dark clouds, ominous, and the white, snow-white cranes, this contrast, the contrast was so beautiful that my spirit lost itself in far-off places. I lost consciousness and fell. The rice scattered onto the ground. Someone picked me up and brought me back in their arms to the house of my parents. I was overcome by an excess of pleasure and emotion. This was the first time that I was blissed out in ecstasy. So you see from the very beginning the material from which Ramakrishna was made. He could have become at least a very, very sensitive artist. He had the sensitivity of a hysterical painter, musician, somebody who is oversensitive, definitely. At the age of seven, there came a second revelation, a brutal shock, death, that of his father. Early wake-up call to the unreality of beings, to the ephemeral nature of things down here. The child became lone, lonely, more lonely, more and more attracted by holy scriptures and chants, meeting with pilgrims and monks. He also loved to play in sacred dramas presented during festivals and celebrations. So, this also definitely had an influence. You remember that by uh, symmetry, other of the great masters of the world, like Jesus himself, lost their father when they were young. So, they were the sons of a widow, as the designation in the occult realms goes. A wealthy widow, Rani Rasmani, and her brother-in-law, Mathur Babu, had just finished building a temple at Dakshineshwar, six kilometers north of Calcutta, devoted to Kali, the Divine Mother. Um, now it's in Calcutta. It's a suburb of Calcutta, which has grown and grown since that time. 
So consecrated to Kali, the Divine Mother, it's a very good synchronicity because we are giving the Kali initiation these days. And you see here in this article, again, a beautiful presentation, Kali, time, Shakti, concert of Shiva, feminine aspect of God. Rani Rasmani was looking for a Brahmin to become the priest of the temple, but was having much difficulty in finding one, since she herself was a Sudra, one of the lower caste. So in India it matters even today, but in those days it mattered even more. This woman was rich, but she was from a low caste. She built a temple to Kali, and then the Brahmins, the good old nice Brahmins of India, they wouldn't become priests in her temple because it was a temple belonging to a sudra and they considered it below their dignity. After a few hesitations, Ram Kumar, Ramakrishna's brother, accepted the post and Ramakrishna accompanied him and later took over his place and task one year later upon his brother's death. So Ramakrishna had the brother who was so old who died just one year later and... Um, you see, his father died very young. This shows something about life in India, life expectation, and so on. In those days, like people were living in uh, the feeling of this ephemeral a lot. People were dying young, and you had always to focus. Even Ramakrishna lived 50, which was not a very ripe age. Now we are having a big quote, which is taken from Suzanne Lemaitre, a French author who wrote a book on the life of Ramakrishna. So all I'm taking now is a quote from a quote, a quote from a text about it. A fundamental stage in the life of Ramakrishna then began for him at Dakshineshwar. He was 20 years of age and now a priest. Having been born in an orthodox Brahmin family, he knew well the temple service, the various religious rites he needed to accomplish during the daily ceremonies. He also recognized that the innumerable gods of Hinduism were limited manifestations of the one infinite spirit, unfathomable by the finite intelligence of man. I think in my personal history, this text was the first time when I read an intelligent, rational author, in this case Suzanne Lemaitre, writing exactly what's the story about these strange gods and goddesses of Hinduism, which make you think about polytheism, which make you think about primitive societies, which make you think about Indian cults and religions. He, she says, she presumes, she assumes, she puts it on Ramakrishna, he recognized, Ramakrishna realized, that the innumerable gods of Hinduism were limited manifestations of the one infinite spirit. So it's still we talk about one God, but we also accept that that one God can appear in limited manifestations for various purposes. And thus you get the deities, the gods and the goddesses, only as fingers of God, extensions, that like you don't need to come out of the monotheistic view of the universe because of Kali. Kali represents, as we say here, manif a manifestation of the one infinite spirit, which is unfathomable by the finite intelligence of man. So we can understand a limited manifestation of the one infinite spirit, like Kali, but the one infinite spirit is unfathomable 
by the finite intelligence. It inspired me because then I became very comfortable with the idea, understanding, you know, from a, an author, some of the understandings of Ramakrishna. The paragraph continues, and it's even more beautiful for all those of you who may have some uh, obstacles in understanding these deity yoga of India and Tibet. However, these divine manifestations of a symbolic nature, so they are divine manifestations and they are of a symbolic nature. If you symbolize time like that, of course you can symbolize time in mathematics by other symbols in a much more abstract way. When you do the equations of time, like in the theory of relativity or others. That's why, um, of course, the point is clear. So these divine manifestations of a symbolic nature correspond to the human affinities. Mysteriously, because we are children of the same universe as time and space and the others, we may have affinities. We may be on the same line. We may be aligned somehow with some of these and not so much aligned with others of them. And that's why here the text is again inspiring and correct. It says that uh, they are of a symbolic nature, but they correspond to human affinities. If people know how to invoke them with fervor, with fervor, that's a powerful word, these symbolic gods help seekers to attain liberation from the phenomenal world, and from the challenges that arise in it, according to each one's karma. Gods, to conclude, are but intermediaries of the source of all light, of all wisdom, of all intelligence, that is one without a second. So, that's how it is the correct way to interpret all these deity yogas of India and Tibet, that these deities are intermediaries, are the in-betweens, from the ultimate to the human being. As long as a being remains hemmed by the ties of his personality, of his terrestrial desires, he can only worship God through forms that are accessible to him, because the mind cannot understand the supramental, the thing which is over the mind. But the mind can understand Kali, if, even though not completely, but can understand to a certain extent. This is why the Sanatana Dharma, the old Hindu Dharma, when it was one in time, asked its followers to pray to God as to an ideal father, to an ideal mother, to an ideal friend, before worshipping him in spirit. Because the human beings need a little bit of a support for their devotion, for their meditation. Since the name, once formulated, leads one to the nameless, the form to the formless, the word to silence, and ecstasy to the serene realization of peace in the Absolute, which is here called Satchitananda. So, um, it's a beautiful text. I loved to read some of these as mantras, as inspiration. Because the name leads to the nameless, like the name of Kali leads to the nameless, beyond Kali. The form, the form of Tara leads to the formless. 
the word either under the form of mantras or whatever rituals, it leads to silence. And the ecstasy, which is the lower types of samadhi, they lead to the peace of the absolute Satchitananda, which is the higher forms of samadhi. Gradually, continues Suzanne Lemaitre with her analysis, brilliant analysis, gradually the gods melt into the one. You couldn't have said it better, like you meditate with Kali until Kali melts into God. That the Tibetans call the first part the stage of generation, and the second part, when the melting occurs, the stage of completion. Like, it's very well understood, and this woman had a very uh, beautiful understanding, very clear understanding. Not many authors have I found in my life who wrote with you know, accuracy, like describing exactly with simple words, of course, intellectual words, not totally simple, but describing clearly, not with any shade of mysticism or, uh, you know, like unreasonable mysticism, that's what I'm trying to say. Until such achievement, the devotee cannot dissociate the human factors from his worship, and as a result, He needs to use concrete objects, such as statues covered in garments and jewelry, for his adoration. Because the human mind, again, it goes with difficulty into abstract thinking and more. And beyond the mind, you don't go with the mind. During rites of adoration, the Hindu mystic, whose different spiritual centers in the body, chakras therefore, have been awakened, invokes the Supreme Spirit in his heart in order that it may be transferred into the image that is in front of him. So that is the charging of the image, the fact that the image is charged with efficiency. He no longer sees the clay or the stone in the image, but only the veil of the Spirit pulsating with life. After an act of adoration, the Spirit returns to its real sanctuary, which is the heart of the practitioner. This long quote from the book of Suzanne Lemaitre, Ramakrishna, pretty rare book, uh, minor biography of Ramakrishna, was used in this text from Planet. And now we end the quote and we continue with Ramakrishna. What was he doing in those years? Kali, the mother, the black... Let us cite a few verses taken from a hymn to Kali composed by the great sage Shankaracharya around the year 800, a bit before the year 800 AD. Who are you, says Shankaracharya about Kali? Who are you, you whose hands hold both joy and sorrow? The shadow of death and the elixir of immortality are both your favor, O mother. Unquote. End of quote. Death precedes life, life resurges after death, an ambivalent image, both beautiful and horrible, charming and murderous, fertile and castrating, an image whose attributes are gathered in this powerful symbol of the divine essence, in this female goddess of dark and harmonious body, of breasts swollen with milk, of ferocious fangs, a sword in one hand, a symbol of physical extermination and of the destruction of the source of error, the individual ego that is to be broken. This is how four-armed Kali is described, 
personification of the eternal perfection, absolute power of transcendent time, since in a world, and now I'm quoting from the French Sanskritologist Alain Danielou, since in a world where joy is linked to attachment, like we think joy is because of we are attached to certain things, either food items, sexual items, comfort, daily life items, whatever. Joy is linked to attachment, and in this, in such a world, then she, Kali, represents a stage beyond all attachments, and therefore she appears to us as terrible. That's what Alain Danielou analyzed, understanding that why there is this frightening part of the symbol. Because you have to let go of everything. In front of death, in front of time, everybody has to let go of everything. And people don't want to let go for the life of them. And then, of course, it's exactly like somebody takes each one of your fingers and breaks it away from your attachment. You know, And then it's not pleasant, but it is what happens. Since the deity, by her feminine nature symbolizes the maternal principle. I hope this inspires you with all the Mahavidyas and with the Shakti festival yet to come, making you understand uh, this heritage which Agama has of the Mahavidya Yoga and all the other Shakti aspects and how elaborate these things are um, and how metaphysical they are and how they do not refer to some village primitive worship. They actually refer to very highly intellectual, metaphysical, and devotional aspects. Since the deity, by her, femi- by her feminine nature, symbolizes the maternal principle, source and vehicle of life, because the feminine is the source of life, and the vehicle of life carries on life, she incarnates as well the destructive function that takes back and makes disappear the creatures that have been given life, and this in an ever-repeating cycle. The divine energy is one. She unites creation to destruction in a single indivisible principle. Such is the goddess to whom Ramakrishna consecrated himself. All his life he stayed as a worshipper of Kali, uh, much more in the first part of life where this was his exclusive practice, and, and whom he worshipped in his desperate quest for the divine with a desire to tear the veil of appearances, of the relative appearances of the world. He did his service as a priest with fervor, passionately begging the mother to reveal herself, to unveil herself. He no longer slept or ate, but lived in a kind of delirious despair. So this is again part of this extreme vata, extreme Ishvara Pranidhana and uh, partly hysterical temperament. Like many of you will worship Kali by learning tantric doctrines from Agama. But the question is, will you do it without eating and without sleeping and desperate day and night? Very few people have the stamina, the Ishvara Pranidhana, to go to such lengths. And one day... And now it's a quote from the words of Ramakrishna. Again, never written down by him, but collected by some of his disciples and put on paper after his death. I was prey, says Ramakrishna, said about his experience. I was prey to an intolerable anguish. It seemed as though someone 
was squeezing my heart like a wet cloth. The suffering was tearing me apart. At the thought that I might not have the blessing of the divine vision in this life, that's what he wanted, to have it in this life, a terrible frenzy took hold of me. I was thinking, if it must be so, enough of this life. The large sword glittered in the hand of Kali. My gaze fell upon it, and a lightning bolt struck me through the brain. She, she will help me put an end to it. I rushed up. I took hold of it like a madman. And behold, the room with all its doors and windows, the temple, everything faded away. <coughs> it seemed to me that nothing existed any longer. Instead, I perceived an ocean of spirit without limits, dazzling. Wherever I turned my eyes to look and as far as I might gaze, I saw enormous waves of this bright ocean rushing towards me. These waves came furiously with a formidable noise as though to swallow me up. In an instant they were upon me, crashing down and swallowing me up. Rolled by them, I was suffocated. Because in Samadhi, uh, the breath tends to stop. But also some people will say that's a very hysterical, physiological reaction. I lost consciousness and fell. What happened that day and the following, I don't know. Inside of me, there lolled, lolled, an ocean of ineffable joy, and deep down I was conscious of the Divine Mother's presence. End of quote. This is how Ramakrishna describes his first state of Samadhi with the worship of Kali. He then continues our presentation, just to see the style, the inspiration. He then lived an unbelievable period where exacerbated by this vision, a desire to perceive again and again the divine overwhelmed his entire spirit. So he didn't say, ah, I did it. Now it's time to take a break. No, he just went like I saw it today. I want to see it three times tomorrow. You know, it's like a drug. It's like the greatest drug in the world. So he went nuts. With exaltation beyond any reasonable measure whatsoever, he, pry, he prayed, wept, cried out, sang in order to be held by her, by the divine energy. He surrendered body and spirit to her. Like he wanted the encore. He wanted the again and again and again, more and more. During these accentuations in his visions, Hridai, the nephew of this divine madman, took care of him, attending to all his needs, since Ramakrishna was often struck by losses of consciousness. He was like going cataleptic, which we in yoga say it's specific to some states of samadhi. But of course in psychiatry, he would be considered like having some grand mal or something like this, and going into some catalepsy, uh, uh, like many schizophrenics and mental patients may go. No, and uh, therefore, that's why I say, where is the line? It's such a narrow line. And like Jesus says, the tree is known by its fruits. Because mad people in the hospitals, they don't produce the effects which Ramakrishna produced upon life 
and the people around him. So Lama Krishna was often struck by losses of consciousness and his body seemed like a fire, sometimes drops of blood sweating from the pores of his skin. The only time in history where drop, drops of blood are mentioned as sweating from the skin is at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was in agony, perceiving that he was going to be crucified, and he prayed for it not to happen. And then blood came out of his skin. Like you can imagine the tension in the case of Jesus. Well, the same tension was in the body of Ramakrishna. Like Ramakrishna was praying until blood was coming from his skin. You can imagine what a maniac, what a hysterical madman you have to be to go to such intensity of feeling. Such states have often been described in the lives of other great devotional mystics, such as with drops of blood and other such blacking out, loss of consciousness, such as St. Teresa of Avila, St. Philip of Neri, St. John of the Cross. The doctor's instructions and diagnosis could do nothing. Like he was just nuts. His two protectors then, the owners of the temple, decided to send him home to spend some time with his mother, who was thinking of getting him married. You can see the ridiculousness of it. His mom was just a stupid peasant from a village, and all she could consider that would make her son happy would be to get him married. And this man was sweating drops of blood, meditating with Kali. You know, like, this is the contrast between somebody living a spiritual life and somebody living a bourgeois, mundane life. People have totally different goals and dreams in these two worlds. They're like two worlds very, very far apart from each other. So, and then you can see also the thing, you know, that if you want your spiritual practice to diminish, go back to your mother. No, that's valid for everybody because in this community we live this thing all the time. That some people are here and do yoga like crazy and then they go home to mama in the Muladhara Svadhisthana safe cocoon of the family and there suddenly you find that you practice three times less and like Ramakrishna, you know, why didn't Ramakrishna, even Ramakrishna, he could have gone and said Kali, 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 oh forget about mom, Kali, Kali, but the presence of the mom and this, like, ah, now producing some sort of diminishing. In his case, it was beneficial because he was too much. But very few other people, you can say that they practice too much, that Swamiji has to send them to their mom to cool down a little bit, you know. It's like, basically, there is no need for anybody to go to their mom because they need to heat up, not to cool down. Ramakrishna thus returned to his native village and remained there for more than one year. He was married in 1859 to the very young Sarada Devi of only five years of age at that time, a completely spiritual union since the little girl then returned to her parents and did not see her husband for more than 10 years. In India, although they practice this pre-marriages, arranged. It's not, it's not, the details are not given in this text here. And they are not very relevant only by comparing Indian customs. In India, they consider that girls are ready for a actual marital life 
at the age of 16. They consider that the body of a woman is not completely formed and even her basic psychology till the age of 16. And therefore, they advise girls not to start their sexual life before 16. Of course, today, most girls do start their sexual life before 16. But uh, although the marriage was done, it was again only symbolic. What is not said here that is that Ramakrishna accepted to be married to some woman, but then he demanded that he should be allowed to choose, not his mom should choose for him. And his mom saying, okay, better something than nothing, then she accepted that. And then Ramakrishna indicated the village and the place where to find this girl. Apparently he had an vision, an access of clairvoyance of some sort, and then he found his uh, future wife by a vision. The intuition was correct because his wife, Sarada Devi, uh, she became one of the greatest female saints of India of the 19th century, and she lived up to the um, stakes of this very difficult life. Not to mention that she was married to one of the most crazy, extreme, hysterical mystics of the 19th century and probably of the history of India. And she somehow managed to put up with it. Also, for your curiosity, those who study astrology, it's not said here. Sarada Devi was a Sagittarius by her astrological sign. So this is a relationship between a male Aquarius and a female Sagittarius, which uh, they had. As for Ramakrishna, appeased by the family ambience for a while, like you put a red-hot knife in a bucket of water, no? Like he got cooled down because he was not there in front of his thing. And maybe again, it was, maybe it was highly beneficial for him to take a, a bit easy because he was too much. He returned again to the temple when he, when, where the visions began anew insistently. Like again, he went into the fast lane. In 1861, so two years later, his protector Rani Rasmani died, but her brother-in-law Mathur Babu continued to support him, casting aside all complaints from narrow-minded temple goers concerning this strange priest devoured by divine love. Uh, in the meaning that uh, he, they were low caste, Ramakrishna couldn't care less, but if the people who came to the temple, they saw Ramakrishna doing weird things like crying, shouting, pouring flowers over his own head, like he was acting like a total madman, mystical madman, and they said, you shouldn't have a priest like this. And luckily, this poor, these rich people from a low caste, uh, they actually valued him. They said, no, 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 this young man is the real thing. Let him be, you don't know, you know, so like we love him. He's our priest here and so on. And finally came into his life the two masters of knowledge, the two gurus, directing him on how to concentrate his aspirations and visions. So until now, even with states of samadhi, Ramakrishna actually did not have a guru. The only guru was that he knew the worship of Kali. He was doing rituals and pujas and he did it for 12 years. Remember, now we are talking about 1861 and he was born in 1836, right? So therefore, you make the maths of it. He must have been 
like 25 years old already. So he found his gurus only after 25. First, a woman known under the alias the Brahmin nun or Bhairavi Brahmani, devotee of the Vaishnavite rituals, the devotional cults directed to Vishnu, the preserver, so she was a Vaishnava yogini, who discerns to the world under incarnated forms such as Krishna and Rama, and also a devotee of tantric rituals. It is from this woman that she got the name Rama Krishna, because she saw immediately that he was connected to Vishnu's incarnations. Ramakrishna confessed to her about his blind path, because until now he was a man of great aspiration, and he already reached 90% of the goal. But still, it was blind, like he was just a man who was wriggling in the agony of loving Kali, loving God, and searching for the light but not knowing really what to do, what was what, and all that, and wanted to know if his experiences were symptoms of madness. She reassured him and demonstrated to him that he had already overcome the hardest and toughest stages of the sadhana, of the spiritual practice. Quote, that's what Ramakrishna said that, that Bhairavi Brahmani told to him. So it's a quote. My son... Blessed is the man upon whom befalls such a madness. The entire universe is mad. Some are mad for wealth, others for pleasure, others for glory, and others for a hundred other different things. They are mad for their gold, or for their husband, or their wife, mad for petty nothings, mad with the desire of exerting tyranny over others, mad for all the stupid things, but not mad for God." And they cannot understand anything else than their own madness. If a man is mad with a desire for the beloved, mad with a desire for the Lord, how could they understand him? End of quote. Together, they then methodically retraced this path following the teachings of Bhairavi Brahmani. Like she taught him some yogas, even a bit of hatha yoga, which he never practiced a lot, but he did a bit. He had a vision of the ultimate cause, like a shining triangle from which emanate an infinite number of worlds. It's quoted by Alen Danielu as having been said by Ramakrishna. The three inferior degrees of manifestation are symbolized by the three sides of a triangle which represents divine thought, the source of existence. These three sides are the power of will, Icha Shakti, the power of knowledge, Jnana Shakti, and the power of action, Kriya Shakti. Those of you who did Kashmiri Shaivism, you know that this is a common trend in the triadic mysticism of India. The center of this triangle, the transcendental logos, word, is the fourth degree, the plane of the non-manifestation. This triangle with its center becomes a perfect symbol of God. End of quote. He perceived also one of the remarks which he did. He perceived the primordial and universal sound Aum, the mantra Aum, which we teach first here in the school among the mantras, in every sound and noise of the world. Quote, Aum is the unique and eternal syllable, out of which whatever exists is only a development. The past, present and future are all included in this single sound, and everything that exists beyond these three forms of time is also involved in it. End of quote. It's very close, it's like Ramakrishna almost 
quoted from uh, an Upanishad, the Mandukya Upanishad. Those of you who will ever get to read the Mandukya Upanishad, you'll find there a paragraph which is very close to this. So Ramakrishna kind of confirmed. He quoted from Mandukya Upanishad and he said, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. I've been there, done that. I've seen it with my own eyes. Kundalini, the coiled goddess, another form of Kali and Shakti. Kundalini, the coiled goddess, the dormant energy, awakened and raised along his spine, awakening the six mystical centers of energy, the chakras, ending up at the seventh, situated above the top of the head, the lotus with a thousand petals, Sahasrara, giving thus to this exceptional human being the complete spiritual fulfillment of his spiritual faculties by the complete fusion of the female and male principles because Kundalini is female and Shiva sitting in Sahasrara is male. So it's also a union of the female with the male. Therefore, by the union of Shiva with his Shakti, Samadhi, bliss, ecstasy. And the Bhakta, Ramakrishna, he was still a Bhakta, a great devotee, lover of God, worked thus for three years with Bhairavi Brahmani, disciplining his spirit to love without limits, beyond any conditioning. His guru had him recognized as an incarnation of the divine, Avatara, by the most important theologians of the time and region. After In a few years spending time with him, this woman realized that this was not a normal man, that he was way too much have aspiration and insight. And then she called what whoever she knew in the area, theologians and others, and they had a big meeting where they exhibited Ramakrishna like a pet. They just put him in the middle, and Bhairavi Brahmani said, this is the man I'm talking to you about. And she said, I, I claim that this man might be an avatara, but you are theologians, you are great spiritualists, uh, you know, tell me, I'm right, am I subjective because this is my disciple or what? So these people were like 20 people around him in a circle, studying him like an insect under a magnifying glass. And meanwhile, Ramakrishna was playing with two balls in the sand. He was just having two children's toys, and he was playing like a retard. He was sitting there almost like a spastic retard or something, playing and ignoring them completely while they were talking about him if he was an avatar or what the heck was he. So they recognized, that's why he was proclaimed to be an avatara. He, on the other hand, remained humble, devoted to the Supreme Mother, effaced in front of her. This is the true mark of greatness. This is the true mark of greatness, which we read about Ramakrishna and others, and which is so often forgotten in India. I find it more often imposed and recommended in the Christian environments, where humility, humbleness, meekness is a virtue which is almost enforced on the practitioners, then in India, where this freestyle, that there are as many lineages as gurus and as many opinions as practitioners, uh, makes that sometimes people who don't have a proper education, uh, they enhance their ego. If they are part of such a thing, then they start bragging, you know who I am. I can see Kali, you know, I have visions, I have been acknowledged like being an avatara. And then they start just becoming arrogant and, you know, like, listen to me, I know what I'm talking. It's like, 
this kind, while Ramakrishna, while being proclaimed, not an enlightened yogi, being proclaimed an avatara, he remained totally humble, devoted, even effaced. You know, like you, you, it's like you, you effaced his face. You almost didn't see him. He was almost like wanting to disappear and to hide. Now, this being, as Mahatma Gandhi said, the solid foundation of all the other spiritual virtues, this being true greatness, you can see that Ramakrishna lived. It's, he was not a fake. He indeed was in the parameters of this greatness. Then he got the visit. So after three years, he must have been now 28 or something. He got the visit of a wandering sadhu, skinny, hard and dry like a rock, called Totapuri, who became his second guru. This, the young seeker still needed to transcend the personified aspect of God to reach to the formless God, to the absolute and undifferentiated Brahman. A priest, he now needed to become a monk, a sannyasi. Sannyasas are the sadhus, the ones dressed in orange. The dualism to be reabsorbed into non-dualism, into the single reality of oneness. Tatapuri, while Bhairavi Brahmani taught him a more shakti part of his teaching, Totapuri was the clear exponent of something very masculine, very dry, very hard, and taught him the concepts of Advaita, the non-duality, the most strict and abstract form of Vedanta, <coughs> which focuses ultimately on the impossibility of defining God, Brahman, Atman, the infinite, and which in this way connected perhaps with the vision of some Hindu, uh, some Christian mystics like Saint Denis the Areopagite, Saint Isaac of Syria, and many other mystics who also had experiences under Christian prayer of non-duality, of oneness completely, on, on this impossibility, the apophasis, the impossibility to define anything about the infinite, about Brahman. Everything is illusion, inexistence. What remains is only the inexpressible. As they say in Vedanta, see the self and be the self, which is called Atman. Tatvam Asi, which is one of their favorite mantras, which means that you are, you are that, you are Brahman. That meaning the word, the logos, the original abyss, the silence, the being, the metaphysical absolute, an absolute beyond all knowledge. And so Totapuri started teaching him this. And after initiation, after the symbolic abandonment of all attachments, because in the sannyasa diksha they shave your head, they take away all your clothes, they give you new orange clothes and so on. So it's like you abandon everything. You serve the funeral service for your mother and father because like in case they die and you are in a cave meditating, you already did their funeral service. So they absolve you of any sort of obligation and attachment in this world. After having put on the orange robes of a sannyasi, emblematic of the new stage of his evolution, now again it's the words of Ramakrishna about what happened to him with Totapuri. Here you see 
the going from the Shakta worship with Kali to the Brahman Shaiva type of worship, the masculine approach of this very severe masculine master and very dry, very tough. The naked man, Totapuri, was going naked around. He was one of the naked Babas of India. The naked man encouraged me to detach my spirit from all objects and plunge into the depths of Atman. However, despite all my efforts, I could not cross the kingdom of name and form and bring my spirit to this so-called unconditioned state. I had no difficulty whatsoever to detach my spirit from all objects except for one. This was the all-too-familiar form of the radiant, blissful mother, Kali. As, like now he had become attached to Kali, paradoxically. Essence of pure consciousness, who appeared in front of me like a living reality. She was blocking the road to whatever awaited beyond. I tried many times to concentrate my spirit on the teaching of Advaita, but every time the form of the mother would impose herself. Desperate, I said to Totapuri, it is impossible. I cannot elevate my spirit to the unconditional state to find myself face to face with Atman. He answered to me severely, what you cannot, like he also could perceive that this man, this young man was special. And he said, what you cannot, you must. Glancing around, he found a piece of glass, took it and jammed its point in the middle of my forehead and said, concentrate your spirit on this point. I began to meditate with all my might, and as soon as the gracious form of the Divine Mother appeared again, I used my discrimination as a sword, and I split her in half. Then there were no more obstacles in front of my spirit, which in that very moment took off away from the plane of conditioned things, and I lost myself in Samadhi. End of quote. He needed an unnatural tension of his force, an infinite suffering to break open the door of the inaccessible. But hardly, barely had he entered, he reached in one go to the last stage, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, where both the subject and the object disappear simultaneously. Says Ramakrishna again, the universe switched off. Space itself was no more. First, some ghost-like ideas still floated upon the obscure background of my spirit, only the weak consciousness of the I repeated itself monotonously. Then even this one stopped. Existence then remained alone. The soul lost itself in the Supreme Self. All dualism vanished. Finite space and infinite space became one. Beyond speech, beyond thought, I realized Brahman. End of quote. Ramakrishna remained three days non-stop in Nirvikalpa Samadhi in front of his master, so 72 hours, who watched him. After having passed through the perspective of dualism, where his relation to the divine expressed itself by the respectful attitude of mother, son, father, son, sister, brother, master, servant, Sri Ramakrishna had come to know with the help of his first guru, the Vaishnava disciplines, bringing with them a supraconscious state which makes the individual become part of the divinity. Now, at last, through Advaita, he simply became one with the cosmic being, one with the ocean of the absolute. Kali, the divine mother, had become to him Brahman, the Absolute, 
Like he, he went through Kali. Kali was his door. Yeah? But even Kali was transfigured, was transmuted into the Supreme. That's the meaning of working with Chinamasta or with Kali. All right? You reach that level and then even beyond that level, then there is a transmutation going to into oneness. The story could have ended here, since after this stage, few people come back. The body withers and dies, the spirit remains melted in the absolute all. It is because of this reason that the Buddhists in Mahayana, they created the Bodhisattva vow to prevent people from staying in this state forever and not coming back. Not because for them, for them it's perfectly okay but for the rest of humanity to fulfill some task of compassion. So, um, in India, it was known that some people can exert a choice in this state. Here it doesn't say how, but this was a very dramatic thing. It was a process of back and forth in which Ramakrishna stayed in this Samadhi state for about six months. After three days, his guru stood up and left because he was also totally detached. And he said, I did my duty. This man spent 72 hours in Samadhi. I don't even need him to tell me thank you. You know, it's like, I'm out of here. I did my job. So the guru just left. And Ramakrishna remained there. And for six months, he went in Samadhi, out of Samadhi, in Samadhi, out of Samadhi, just on the verge of leaving his body and dying. But he had a mission to accomplish, men to help. He understood that the inactive and the active, like if you are dead or alive, gone in nirvana or involved in karma yoga in this world, the personal and the impersonal are but one, such as the diamond at its glow or such as the serpent and its crawl. Maya, the illusion, the absolute Brahman, the divine mother, the other gods, man, the entire creation are not only aspects of the one, but are the only one and the same being. Says Ramakrishna, Brahman and Kali do not differ one from the other, no more than the fire from its action of burning. Like, very, this is a vision of oneness, that the connection between Shiva and Kali. Shiva is like the fire, and Kali is like the power of burning of the fire. So it's like Shiva is the principle, but Kali is the power of the principle, the manifestation, the energy of the principle. All concepts resolve themselves in the same solution. Having be become perfectly conscious of this, there still remains the goal of perpetuation of this ageless teaching in the world. Like somebody has to be there to give it to the next generation. Moreover, it is absurd to pretend that the world is unreal as long as we are still a part of it. Quote from Romain Roland as taken from Ramakrishna. As long as one's me or ego seems relatively real, this world is also real and the absolute seems relatively unreal. Like there is no God as most people feel or 
expect. And therefore, one perceives Maya as real. However, with one's me purified, one now sees the ensemble of the phenomenal world as the multiple sensory manifestation of the Absolute. The world is the body of God. Romain Roland has also explained very well this idea. Quote, the real face of Maya appears to him. She is at the same time the true and the false. Knowledge and ignorance, vidya and avidya. All that leads to God and everything that does not. Therefore, she is. As a result, everything becomes clear. And the seer, gushing out from the fiery void of Brahman, finds with devotion the Divine Mother, his beloved, and he sees her with new eyes now, since he finally recognizes her deep meaning, her identity with the Absolute. This is what the Tibetan Tantra calls the stage of completion, that after you visualize a deity, you make that deity dissolve into the void. You visualize Kali, and then you say Kali ultimately is nothing else but a manifestation of the void and of the Buddha nature. And thus Kali kind of, you create her in the first stage to visualize her, to love her, to worship her. And then she dissolves in the absolute, in the totality. So again for Ramakrishna, now that he saw the other part, now he could understand what Kali truly was. She is the Absolute that communicates with mankind, the impersonal that transforms itself into man, that transforms into woman. She is the head of all incarnations, the divine mediator between the infinite and the finite. That's why the Mahavidyas are so important, because they, are, they work like a mediator, like an in-between, which makes easier for us to make the crossing. And Ramakrishna intones the hymn to the Holy Mother Kali in his case. Yes, my Holy Mother is nothing other than the Absolute. She is the one and the same time multiple and also what lies beyond the one and the multiple. My Holy Mother says, I am the Mother of the Universe. I am the Brahman of the Vedanta. I am the Atman of the Upanishads. It is I, the Brahman, that has caused this differentiation. The good and bad works obey me. There is, without any doubt, a law of karma. Yes, it is I who is the legislator. The creating and undoing of laws belong to me. I command all karma, good and bad. Come to me by love, bhakti, or by knowledge, jnana, or by action, karma, like in karma yoga, which leads to God. And I will lead you through this world, ocean of all this work. And I will give you the knowledge of the absolute also, if you want it. You cannot separate yourselves from you or from me. Even those who have realized the absolute in samadhi come back to me by my will. My Holy Mother is the divine primordial energy. She is everywhere. She is at once inside and outside of all phenomena. She has given birth to the world and the world carries her in his heart. She is the spider and the world the web she has spun. The spider extracts the web from its substance and then spins it. My Mother is at the same time the container and the contained. 
She is the shell. She is the almond. Soon, Totapuri left him enlightened in his own turn by the one who had been his disciple. That is a long story here, according to which Totapuri took a lesson, took a very strong lesson from Ramakrishna, who in one leap, because he was an avatara, had become such a great yogi that now he was inspiring even his ex-guru. He was beyond his guru. As for Ramakrishna, now conscious of being a son of the world, with his body tortured by dysentery, in those six months he contracted dysentery and that helped him actually, paradoxically, he allowed to his spirit to come back gradually to the physical plane. Cured then in a state of equilibrium and perfect serenity, he found himself receiving and guiding the innumerable spiritual searchers, seekers, who converged to the temple to see him in the hopes of trying to know, to understand at last. Now he started becoming a guru. It was time that he could be a guru and people already knew there is this crazy young man who is going in samadhi all the time and so on and people realize he must be a master. Also Bhairavi Brahmani proclaimed him an avatar and therefore his fame started going. After having stayed six months in an almost continuous state of beatitude and communion with the Absolute, guarded by other sadhus without whose care he would have been dead, the Master came back to life to do good to the world. He identified himself with all the sufferings and miseries and ardently tried, desired to heal or bring even a bit of light to all those whose eyes were blind or closed. He wanted to destroy the tenacious masks of greed, hate, of various blinding desires and passions to help others rediscover the peace of the soul. Gather together what was dispersing itself and try to give to each individual his own key. This was very beautiful about Ramakrishna. His heart was very big and he was very wise because he said before finding God, you have to find yourself. No, like it's very difficult to first of all not understand a bit about yourself. If you are a total mess, how are you going to find God? No, you can't expect a messed up person to find the divine. So he wanted that people first should find a balance about themselves, like yoga does, bringing a healing, bringing a harmony, which um, then you can escalate, you can go on the mountain of big-time yoga. Dakshinarvar temple became like an asylum from all, for all passing pilgrims of whatever religion or beliefs they may have. One could then find often Muslims mixing, mixing in all brotherhood with Hindus. At the end of 1866, Ramakrishna stopped in front of a poor Muslim man prostrating towards Mecca and saying his prayers. By the gift of clairvoyance which he had, the master understood that this man, called Govinda Rai, was realizing God by following the path traced by Muhammad. He asked him for the initiation, like he became a Muslim, technically speaking. He received it and followed all the rites and customs of the Islam in the hope of integrating himself perfectly in this tradition. He was even ready, as it seems, to eat the forbidden foods, the meat of the holy animal of the Hindus, the cow. 
like the Muslims have no respect for the cow in India and of course that irritates the Hindus a lot. So apparently he might have even taken a meal with cow meat, a beef steak or something. This to the great scandal of his disciples who have his food prepared in secret by a Brahmin under the direction of a Muslim in order to preserve a so-called embarrassment which he himself knows that was perfectly not existence. And so it is that after realizing Allah, God of the Prophet Muhammad, the Brahman with attributes, he realized a new Brahman without attributes, the undifferentiated absolute. The river of Islam was bringing him to the ocean, just as the river of Hinduism had done. No matter the way, under which aspect, under what name one adores him, what always reaches the one and unique God, if able to separate oneself, from intolerance and fanatical obstination from stupid people. Says he, an ignorant man convinced that his own religion is the best proclaims it uselessly and annoyingly. However, when his spirit is illumined by true wisdom, all disputes about sects disappear. Later, around November 1874, a Hindu read him from the Bible. He was fascinated by the life and the teachings of Jesus and realized by a parallel experience the identity with the Christian God. So he also became Christian. Jesus who had been crucified for the redemption of humanity, Jesus the master yogi in eternal union with God, remained for him the symbol of love incarnated. Ramakrishna could say to those surrounding him, in the shop of a potter, There are various utensils and of different shapes, pots, jars, dishes, plates, but all of it is made of the same clay. Thus God is one, but is adored in different countries and different epochs under various names and aspects. Actually, from his Christian experience, he declared that Jesus was the highest divine vision that he ever had, which is a very, very big statement from one like Ramakrishna. Tolerance and reciprocal respect must be safeguarded since the only important goal really remains the permanent superior reality. Religions are but approaches to the one and the dogmas are two arbitrary ones for the others. One must not lose oneself in the details but instead keep pure the faith, the one and unique faith. Ramakrishna would have stood up against those words of Marx, of Karl Marx, although so often true, religion is the opium of the masses. The deeper sense of spirituality loses itself, remains uh, untouched by passions, remains, surpasses the comfortable superficiality and the accomplished rites which happen from time to time because you just never know, you know, and you have to do your rituals or because this helps to avoid being asked troubling question. A little bit more, one more paragraph about him, and just because it mentions the festival in which we go in about 10 days to see how he celebrated Kali there. In 1867, he returned to his native home, He gets to know his young 
wife Sarada Devi, who was now 14 years old, and like an older brother, gave her religious education so that she could be able to then assist him within a few years in his task. Then, returning to his temple, he did a few pilgrimages accompanied by his protector, Mathur Babu. They journeyed to Varanasi, the city of Shiva, to Vrindavan, the playing field of Krishna. They also met human misery. A famine was ravaging the country. Ramakrishna then forced his rich friend to appease the unfortunate ones with clothing and food as best as he could. Another time, while they were together on the lands of Mathur, they realized once again the extreme bareness of these people who had just missed two years of harvest. Matur was a little bit resistant, but of good grace to cancel all debts, to give relief to the most disadvantaged, and to offer an immense feast to the disinherited. And the master, Ramakrishna, said, God is in all men, but all men are not in God. That is why they suffer. A number of troubles came in his life as well. Matur Babu also died. His own brother and mother disappear in their turn, the mother and brother of Ramakrishna. What consolation to be found if not in this thought which he said, this, this interruption of life we call death does not exist. No, each existence pursues its course in return to the immutable, in return to the eternal. In 1872, when she turned 18 years of age, and now he was 36, his young wife came to visit him and stayed at his side for 20 months. This was the time when they became husband and wife per se. And of course, it is said that Ramakrishna was fully initiated by, by Ravi Brahmani in the tantric rituals, and that that was the time when he initiated Sarada Devi in the tantric practices. Vivekananda brings us the words of the Master, like Vivekananda quoted that Ramakrishna told him the following. If you wish, like when she came, Ramakrishna said an incredible word, which fascinated me for many years. I couldn't understand the word of Ramakrishna, because when Sarada Devi came, and now she was 18, and they were about to become properly husband and wife, uh, he, he told her an incredible word. He said, if you wish to attract me into the world of illusion, as I am your husband, I am at your service. So basically, she said, if you just want to become a stupid housewife, and me a stupid husband, I can do that. Like, it doesn't even matter for me anymore. He offered her an incredible choice. Like, all his future career as a guru was in the hand of Sarada Devi in that day. However, such is not the goal of the young woman. She simply wanted to follow him, to give herself to him in service and to the service of others. Thus, a purely spiritual relationship was established. Sarada Devi didn't want to become a housewife. Sarada Devi wanted to become the wife of a great guru and to be a guru herself, to be of service, to do, to live the life in that way. Ramakrishna saluting in his companion, the Holy Mother, symbol of the immaculate humanity, must be emphasized that his cult to the feminine did not limit itself to her. He recognized the mother in those who are called the last of the last, the prostitutes on the streets, 
quote from one of his disciples. I have seen him in front of these women would write Vivekananda. He falls at their feet, which he bathes in tears. Oh, mother, he says, it is you. Under this form, you are here in the street. Under another form, you are the universe. I salute you, oh, mother, I salute you. That's the behavior of a hysterical mystic of a madman. He was going to the red light district and worshipping the prostitutes on the street. His life, his wife became transformed upon such a contact and remains today venerated in India as a genuine saint to the accompanying of her husband. She had numerous amounts of spiritual children under the form of Ramakrishna's disciples and she held them with a devotion and an abnegation without limit, without exception. Sarada Devi, even when Ramakrishna was gone and she was the main character in the ashram, spent six hours per day in the kitchen like an Indian wife cooking food for everybody. She was totally humble, totally. Although she was the mother of the ashram, she cooked for everybody, for the disciples from the ashram. She cooked with her own hand. So, and although having a Sagittarian temperament, you may expect that she may have been a bit more wild or impatient or no. She was, she was controlling herself and her Dharma very, very well. Now comes a story uh, again from Vivekananda, if I remember correctly, we'll see, quoted by Suzanne Lemaitre and which is about the festival that you are going to witness in a couple of weeks. One night in May, on the 25th of May exactly, in that year the phase of the moon was foregoing on May 25th, day where there is celebrated the cult of the divinity under the form of the mother. It's a special festival uh, out of many. In the temple of Kali in Dakshineshwar there was big celebration. Decorated profusely with flowers, the crowd was pressing itself at the hour of the ritual And Sri Ramakrishna then gestured to Sarada Devi to sit on the seat destined for the divinity instead of bringing the statue. He thus identified her as the great deity herself and adored her according to the tantric rites since in the place of the murti of the statue of the divinity he had placed the living image of Sarada Devi. This is exactly what you are going to see in the Shakti festival. Because as Ramakrishna himself said, if a stone can represent the goddess, how much more can a living woman represent the goddess? During the entire ceremony, the Holy Mother, this time we're talking about Sarada Devi herself, remained in such a deep state of religious fervor, devotion, that at the end of it she entered in Samadhi at the same time with Ramakrishna. The spiritual union of the two spouses was thus consecrated during this puja, Shodashi puja it was called, it was a puja, uh, the puja itself which he did was Shodashi, which was a sort of a maituna, a sort of a mental maituna. The festival is not for Shodashi, for Tipura Sundari. And they remained for in, in ecstasy for hours before returning to their normal state of consciousness. After the Samadhi, Ramakrishna chanted a hymn to the great goddess and placed his rosary at her feet along with the fruits of his long sadhana, meaning the realization of the great teaching of the Upanishads.
for the worshipper of Kali, this solemn act marked the triumph of the spirit over the body, and for Sarada Devi, this was a symbol of her true participation in the life of her husband. Like she allowed herself caught in the madness of Ramakrishna. Like if I'm married with a mad guru, I'm the wife of a mad guru. Wherever he goes, I go. That's it. She was following completely. She surrendered, banishing all personal interests. She took on this role with perfect humility. Later, when Sri Ramakrishna vanished, disappeared, the weight of many responsibilities will press upon her. She became the leader of the ashram. The spiritual interiorization that the priest of Kali, Ramakrishna, stimulated in the heart of Sarada, transformed into spiritual energy, and this is what allowed her to continue the ministry of her husband. This was again quoted from Suzanne Lemaitre, who has a very beautiful way of writing. I'm not going to read further than this. I have more. Um, I could, uh, I have here some wonderful stories about his hyper acuity and then how he ended his life. Um, maybe some other time and I hope that this uh, text will be made accessible as a text for uh, reading and downloading on our site. Uh, there are some corrections of English language to be done there. Um, what I'm trying to say, I hope it gave you the inspiration to see both the worship of the Mahavidyas, here one of them, but what is done with one is precisely identically done with all of them, and therefore the life of a great devotee of Kali, of one of the Mahavidyas, a man who was such a gigantic spirit that he was an avatar, his relationship, you know, very often people are interested in uh, spiritual relationships. Well, if you want to see one, then look at Ramakrishna and Sarada Devi and see there a spiritual relationship leading to Samadhi. And, uh, of course, uh, not only his states of Samadhi, but also the mentioning of the festival in which, instead of a statue, one worships the living goddess, here, because we don't want to consecrate this to one particular Shakti, like to Kali in Bengal, then our festival is consecrated equally to all the ten Mahavidyas, which is a very, very big opportunity. And those of you who will be here will have the grace, the possibility, to see the kind of worship which Ramakrishna did in his own way, resumed in the 21st century, by tantric practitioners together with you, this expression of devotion towards the feminine expressed in its ten fundamental forms. I hope these uh, few things have been of inspiration to you both in the Mahavidya season and also in the festival of the Shakti. And with this, I will stop here for tonight and I will see you in our following satsangs. Enough for tonight.